Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonian, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Tim Morrow. Tim is the CEO of the San Antonio Zoo. He has previously worked with, and correct me if I get it wrong, but I think Fiesta Texas, the San Antonio Spurs, and SeaWorld, basically all big hospitality groups in the city. Uh, since 2014, he's been the CEO of the zoo. In that time, you have seen a lot of the projects that have changed at the zoo. I mean, the, the, the Kitty Park moved over, which a lot of people know about. The Will Smith Zoo School was launched. Um, if you've been there lately, sort of the Rhinos Africa exhibit has become a whole new expanded uh, sort of habitat for animals to share space. There's a jaguar habitat going in. I mean, the list is, is sort of on and on, but some of the more interesting things that I learned about recently is kind of the work they've done to bring animals back from sort of the brink of extinction or end, endangered status. Uh, there's a lot he's done here. I was recently lucky to be appointed to the San Antonio Zoological Society or the Zoo Board. I've gotten to meet Tim, asked him to come on. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tim, I, I do this with everybody. I kind of start with just sort of, sort of some general questions. The idea behind my podcast was to kind of get to talk to people of San Antonio, share yeah. their stories. Uh, so sort of some background questions. Sure. You're, you're, you're running the zoo. Do you have pets? I do have pets. I have two dogs and a cat. Okay. And then I live, you know, out in Leon Springs area, so we have random wild animals at all times around the house or sometimes in the house. Nothing exotic? Nothing exotic. No, I leave that to the zoo, to the okay. professionals. Uh, in your life, have you ever had exotic animals? I have had, you know, snakes okay. and fish and those kind of things, but nothing crazy that you would expect maybe someone that work at a zoo to have at their all house. Right. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, you know, when I'm at the zoo, I feel like a kid. Do you have a favorite animal? It really changes. So it's really okay. whatever habitat we're working on becomes my favorite animal because you really dive so deep into learning about sure. that animal because what we really try to do now with habitats is create natural spaces for them that are enriching. And so you need to learn as much about them as possible. And so right now we're working on Jaguar, a big overhead catwalk system. So Jaguar has become just an animal that I'm fascinated with. I mean, they're a, a big predator. They're strong. They're stealth. And uh, just what they do is incredible if you watch them hunt and you know, grab crocodiles out of the water and pull them up in trees. Sure. It's just an amazing cat. And that the fact they used to be right here in South Texas um, and that there's still pan, uh, jaguars, you know, three hours south of the border into Mexico, um, it's not unrealistic that someday jaguars could make their way back. I didn't realize Texas. that. They yeah. came all the way up to South Texas? Yeah, they were here. Um, they were in Arizona, really across the whole Southwest. Huh. And there's actually, they're starting to spot one in Arizona that's been going back and forth across the border that no they've joke. been spotting in, in uh, Arizona. So. Yeah, not beyond the realm of possibility that a jaguar someday could show up in South Texas. So I thought they were more sort of rainforesty. They'll actually go off into deserts. Yeah, they live in multiple areas, savannas, deserts, rainforests, which is another really cool feature about them. They yeah. really just adapt to um, whatever environment they're in. We do some conservation work in Mexico with them in rainforest. So just three hours south of Brownsville, <laughs> yeah. there's rainforest in the mountains there, and it's full of jaguars and all kinds of amazing species. And we, we partner with Gladys Porter Zoo and an NGO in Mexico to really do a lot of research down there on jaguars and huh. tracking them and seeing how they're work, uh, working and uh, you know connecting with each other and connecting to other wild places uh, as they move around well i mean at the the orientation i was sort of blown away at all that i didn't know and i think i'm going to learn a lot today um i always ask everybody and we always post about it and i've learned a lot about san antonio what are some of your favorite places in san antonio i kind of say the hidden gem so you know the first time i went to the like 
other missions or the first time I went to the, the uh, tea garden, I remember thinking, how have I not been here? These yeah. are great. Do you have any places in town like that that you think are these off the beaten path, really neat places? Yeah, there's so many now, like new things and old things people are discovering in San Antonio. I think the trailway system that San Antonio yeah. is connecting is just really cool and underappreciated. Um, you know, I, I live up on the north side of town towards Leon Springs, and there's just such gems up on that side around town too. these, you know, the, like uh, dance halls and oh, yeah. and uh, old bars that have been there forever and uh, parks that, you know, like Friedrich Park is yeah. is now very much discovered after COVID. I mean, sure. there's 500 cars up and down both sides of the street now for yeah. those parks, but there's jewels all over this town. I just really, you could explore San Antonio forever and not see everything. And I was the chair of the hospitality, the tourism council here in San Antonio and have not even been uh -huh. to all the tourist attractions in town. And then mm -hmm. I, now I do stuff with parks and I haven't been to, you know, probably one Tenth of the parks in San Antonio and across the of South Texas. So yeah, so I had the mayor on, and he told me about Denman Estate Park. I, I think is what it was called. And I had never even heard of me that. Either. And then I looked it up, and it's got these like Japanese tea, uh, uh, ponds and these this Japanese architecture. It's yeah. just, I mean, I didn't even know it existed. Do you think Silver Fox would be a hidden gem? I think Silver Fox is an iconic, uh, legendary <laughs> place. Okay, yeah, I'm <laughs> sure it has been a legend for many people. Yes. Okay, same question, but the zoo. What are the spots in the zoo you think that, man, they don't get enough attention or make sure you, you find this place? Yeah, I think the, the really cool thing about our zoo is it's not this big boulevard, big wide pathway yeah. all the way through. It's got these lots of little exploratory pathways that people can take advantage of. So one of the areas which we're about to revamp and redo next year is the Kronkowski Tiny Tot Nature Spot. And it's an area dedicated mm -hmm. to small kids. Sure. And people kind of just walk right past that area. But if you go in there and go around the back of the building, there's uh, outdoor play for the kids. There's exhibits huh. back there that people don't know about with tortoises. And we had sloths back there at one point. And we would post pictures and people were like, where is that? Like I go to the zoo all the time. I've never seen that. So we, st we have a lot of places in the zoo um, that people really don't go to if they don't get off the main pathways. And then within the zoo, we're, you know, we're 107 years old. So if you really pay attention to the concrete and the architecture, like there's incredible architecture in there, incredible um, hand-carved faux wood concrete throughout cool. the zoo, which was, you know, Denisio, who's a famous artist that did the benches around town that looked like. Oh, uh, yeah, wood. like the one in uh, Alamo Heights that yes. looks like the fairy. Yeah. So yeah. his he was doing a lot of work in Brackridge Park. There's a lot of his work oh, yeah, in the yeah. park. And his apprentices were working in the zoo. And so we have this incredible connection to that artist. And so we have this really um, beautiful zoo with big trees and historic walls and historic yeah. buildings that on, layered on top of all the amazing animals and the things that we're doing at the zoo now. So it's just really fun to explore our zoo. Yeah. Um, is the, the Tiny Tots area, is that where you can go feed the tortoises too? Yeah. So, okay. yeah, we have a tortoise experience now. We, we try to bring a lot of experiences now where people can get up close yeah. with the animals. So we have, you can go in with the tortoises and feed the tortoises. You can go with kangaroos now, pet kangaroos. I saw that. Feed giraffes. We have rhino behind the scene where you can go down and touch our rhinos. You can go hippo behind the scene. You can feed lorikeets. You can feed flamingos. And so we know and zoos know that when people have that personal connection with an animal, like a one-on-one -on -one connection yeah. moment, like you're staring at a giraffe face-to-face, -face, that yeah. you really get inspired to care for that animal more. Uh, because you've had that moment and hopefully that translates to that person going home and doing things that can help the environment and help save that species. I'm telling you, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but I did the, uh, I did the tortoise experience and I told my wife, like, I feel like I connected with the tortoise. Yeah. It was just a very strange, like you were just eye to eye, yeah. you were petting it like a dog. Yeah. There was almost a connection. And, and I think you're right. Like it still sticks with me. Uh, people remember the names of the giraffes and the names of the tortoises yeah. and the kangaroos. It's, there's a connection formed for sure. Uh, your go-to food and drink spots in town. 
Frollo's Pizza, number one, because I live out in Leo Springs. Okay. Uh, great pizza. You can sit outdoors, you know, under the stars. Yeah. And then he's got a great little place next door that's a jazz bar called Bar 301. So that's okay. my kind of, you know, neighborhood area bar. And sure. uh, all the friends hang out there. One of the things I've learned quickly when I got to the zoo is there's just so many food choices um, yeah. down around the zoo in that area that it's limitless. I could literally just drive down St. Mary's and pick a new place every day sure. probably for months. Um, Bombay, of course, near the zoo is a mm-hmm. great place to go. They su- they do a lot to support the zoo, too, oh, good. every month. Um, elsewhere, I don't know if you've been to Elsewhere Garden. It used to be the luxury. Uh-huh. Um, what what Taryn, the owner there, has made that place is just like, it's a giant Instagram photo opportunity and a really cool vibe sitting sure. on the river. Um, but the list goes on and on. I yeah. just enjoy hospitality industry and really right now supporting hospitality yeah. employees who have been through so much this year. So I try to get out to restaurants and those kind of places as much as I can to support did, them. Did the grill get built, built back? I know it caught uh, fire. The, yeah, the grill caught fire probably three, four months ago maybe now. And what I've read online is there's insurance issues. Um, I think the gentleman who founded Macaroni Grill, which his name is escaping me right now, um, he still owns the building, but lives in California or something now. But so it, you know, the grill was chef owned and operated. Um, and I think there's been some insurance challenges. So <laughs> I think he's working through that process, but that was one of the other staples of, of yeah. the food out there. And the food was so good. There. Uh, people yeah. would come out there to eat from, you know, inside 410 or they're like, yeah. we had no idea there was a restaurant out here that had this level. It's of one of the few places I would travel outside of inside yeah. 410 to go. Yeah. It's yeah. great food. So I hope it comes back. Um, you, you know, I, you're hearing more about it. I've, I've heard from people that have worked with you or on the board. You get a lot of accolades and a lot of attaboys for really being a transformational leader at the zoo. What, you know, is there any sort of leadership advice or leadership books that, you know, you've sort of found to be kind of your guiding principles on how to lead people? Because it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, really, it's not a book. It's a philosophy. When I first started at Fiesta, Texas, yeah. Um, that park, when it opened, was owned by Opryland and USA. Did a joint venture uh, to open that park. So if you think about Opryland, it's all about shows. Sure. So Fiesta Texas was very show-heavy when it first opened. Uh, you know, it's got the themed realms of Germany and Crack Axel Canyon and yeah. 50s. I didn't know and, that. Yeah. And so and the philosophy in the theater world is, you know, management's backstage supporting the actors on the sure. stage. And so that kind of translated to everything I've done with management. Like, my job is to support the staff. So to me, my org chart is upside down. I'm at the bottom supporting everyone else above me, but... So that servant leadership is I'm here to make everyone's jobs easier. Yeah. You know, point, this is the direction we're going to go, and then I'm going to help you all get get there with what you need to do that. Um, and then really just supporting each other and um, having a family kind of environment I think is really important. And also hiring people that are smarter than you. So I'm constantly the dumbest guy in the room, which is not hard. And then I have great leaders uh, that work at my vice president and director of management yeah. level that have, you know, just taken us to new limits very quickly in the past six years. And, and people that in San Antonio or that visit us from out of town have seen that, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, during orientation, y'all were talking about stuffing baskets for Easter and all yeah. y'all were talking about how y'all were all doing it together. There yeah. w- didn't seem to be a, uh, a hierarchy, like you said. There was no, I'm too good for this. Right. It was, this is what it's going to take. Um you know, last two questions. Favorite Fiesta event? Oh, Nyosa. Easy. Yeah? Yeah, Nyosa. Oh, man. Tradition. I think you're the first to say yeah. Nyosa. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm crazy. I'm all in. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I love Fiesta, all of Fiesta. Me like, too. I look forward to Fiesta more than Christmas. <laughs> Me too. And so for it to be canceled twice and then be a um, abrupted version, this time was painful. And I never get sick. And I was sick oh, the shit. week of Fiesta. So I made yeah. one night of Nyosa, but I was not full strength. But I plowed through. The rest of it, I slept. I slept through the whole thing. But so I love. Um, I think Taste the Northside is a really great event yeah. now, and that benefits the Brighton Center, which is an amazing organization. Um, and I've really become to love the parades too. Is, yeah. um, the zoo had never had a float in the parades or hadn't for decades, yeah. and so we have floats. 
in all the parades now. Which yeah, is I saw like the river one this year. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this year, the Cavaliers had raised a million dollars for a million fifty thousand dollars for Will Smith Zoo School with one of our donors matching um, that half. That and way, so, the Will Smith Zoo School was one of the beneficiaries of the, the river the, parade this year. The, the key beneficiary. So is we were right? the yeah. So the I didn't know that Grand Marshal was Susan Naylor, who's on our board, and Will Smith Zoo School was Will Smith was her son that was killed when he was eight. Oh, I didn't put that together. So the Cavaliers during COVID. Raised five hundred thousand. Susan matched them uh, with five fifty. She wanted to one up them a little bit, I think, because that's <laughs> Susan's personality. But so we were kind of the featured um, charity of choice this year. Actually, oh, it was last great. year for the Cavaliers, and luckily they let us, you know, yes. kind of ride through because yeah. we really wanted to be part of that parade. So, Grand Marshal was Susan Naylor, who the school is named after her son, and then the third boat in line was Will Smith Zoo School. So it was fun to get a, the publicity for that school. Because so does that d- does that event change beneficiary every year? Yes. Okay, yes. I didn't know that. Yep. Um, is the zoo doesn't have their own fiesta event, do they? Yes, we do. What is it? <laughs> zoo- Festival de Animales. So there, it's we're huh. the last official fiesta event. We go the last weekend, and it's really a zoo wide celebration of the animals and the culture and the food and music of South America, or Latin America. Okay. And so it's an event that the zoo been doing for years. And a couple years ago, we you know, applied to be become an official fiesta event. They're like, you're in. And so we're the, the kind of the grand finale of Fiesta. And it's How just long really has it time. been uh, official Fiesta? Probably event? Uh, official Fiesta event, probably three years now. Okay, three, I don't feel years. as bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a little embarrassed. For <laughs> it's a family fun event. Okay. Um, Which but, there needs to be more yeah. Fiesta events that are really family centered. Yeah. yeah. But we really enjoy being and, and love being a part of Fiesta now. Okay. You know, we're p- such a big part of this community. For us to not have a zoo yeah, float was really deal. a shame. And yeah, so yeah. now, you know, our our kids, our zoo school kids are on there. Or we have, um, cool. you know, we have an an- annual gala called Zoo Ball, Zoobulation mm-hmm. Ball. Three years ago, we started one called Kids Zoo Ball. So kids can have a little kids version of our zoo ball. So we have a kids version and an adult version. Well, the kids version, the kids raise money um, for the zoo. And the, the kids that raise the the boy that raises the most and the girl that raises the most become king and queen of the jungle. And then we've added a court now for, you know, three or four <laughs> other kids. So we get uh, more kids involved. But those kids get to ride on our float with our staff yeah. and things like that. So it's just a really fun experience yeah. to, to see those floats going down the street. Um you know, I think everybody saw the April Fool's joke that the zoo is putting a dome over it. But in all seriousness, I know there's we're going to talk about some of the big capital projects upcoming. Mm-hmm. But do you have a zoo pipe dream? The one that like, I don't know if we'll ever get there. But if I had unlimited money, here's what I'd want to do. Yeah, I think we would, you know, fully build out the zoo. And people probably don't realize how big our property is that we go under 281 to yeah. the other side all the way over to almost tower. So I think building that out fully and then um, adding a safari park here in, in San Antonio okay. around uh, or around San Antonio where we could do, you know, herds of rhino and herds of hoofstock. And I think zoos are kind of moving that direction across the country. You know, the big ones that, you know, have it, San Diego, um, Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha, New Orleans is going that direction. St. Louis is going that direction. So yeah. zoos and Texas is perfect climate. Um, there's a lot of species from Africa and Asia that, that there's more of here in Texas, South Texas, than there is that. in their home ranges of Africa or Asia. Yeah. So, um, it's a perfect environment, and then we could do really more conservation work with yeah. some of those species and things like that. How many acres for a safari park? We would look probably 300 acres to have some big open spaces, and you know, not all of it would be accessible to guests, which gives you some flexibilities yeah. and things like how that. How big is Brooks? I don't know how big that is. We should ask. We should Google that. I had Leo on here. <laughs> yeah, we should Google that. What they're doing down there is yeah, so cool. Yeah, he's building everywhere, though. That's the yeah, true. Yeah. Um, uh, the, and also, you talk about the, the trail system. They just connected their yeah. trail system to the city's trail system. Um Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what the zoo has going on and what is upcoming. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of the conservation efforts and really sort of the way y'all as a zoo are trying to change the way it's perceived. And sure. that we're not here for y'all to look at animals yeah. and beat on the wall. 
we're doing a lot more to educate yeah. people and conserve. And let's talk about some of the conservation efforts because it was really mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I was just talking to someone today about part, one of our biggest challenges is we have so much to tell, it's yeah. hard to get out. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, first we were trying to drive people to come to the zoo and make the zoo an incredible experience. The more people that come to the zoo, the more things like conservation and education that we get to do. So when you come to the zoo, you're helping fund all the things I'm about to talk about. Right. If you take the accredited zoos and our association, the, Amer the Association of Zoos and Aquarium, put all of them together, each year they put over $200 million uh, back into conservation all over the world and boots on the ground. So we're sending staff and we're sending over $200 million to conservation efforts every year. So if you put all the zoos together, yeah. they're one of the biggest conservation movements on the planet. And it's really funded by people visiting zoos. Sure. I mean, that's how it's being funded. Um, and so our zoo, we work on almost every continent. We have projects all over the world that we either lead fund or take part in okay. um, the, the places we're leading projects. We're doing cave work in China. Uh, we're working with Japanese giant salamanders in uh, Japan, which I mean, they get four or five feet big, long, uh, very, do we have some at our zoo. We do not anymore. Okay. We used to, and it was part of a really interesting, interesting trade many decades ago with uh, the Kumamoto zoo, which is a sister city of okay. San Antonio. So uh, and we work in Chile on amphibian research uh, we're working in Mexico, like I mentioned, with yep. jaguars. We're in the Gulf of Mexico, the deep sea, re deep sea research on the Gulf of Mexico, um, in all over the U.S., doing a lot of subterranean work all over the United States, and then even right here in San Antonio with Edwards aquifer species, okay. like the blind salamander. Um, one of our coolest Texas projects is uh, horny toads or horn lizards yeah. or horn frogs. Um, we're, those are disappearing from across the state. It's a good example of zoos collaborating. So Houston, uh, Dallas Zoo, Fort Worth Zoo, and our zoo are all breeding horn toads. They have different genes across different parts of the state. So we've kind of divided the state up into three yeah. zones. And all three of us work with Parks and Wildlife to breed horn toads. We work for years to get, you know, ranches ready or big properties ready for re-release. And then last year we had our we had our first release of 82 uh, baby horn toads mm -hmm. back into the wild. So we're doing that here, which so is they really have trackers special. on them? They we have genetically tagged them so we can track their genetics. Okay. And we can their bellies have like a fingerprint of dots on huh. them. Um, one really interesting thing about that, because we want to go back and see how many we find yeah. and what the survival rate is. This is all new, so we know that we're going to make mistakes along the way. But yeah. we have we have brought on somebody that trains shelter dogs to sniff out <laughs> horn toads in the wild, so they can sniff out the toad or the sheddings of the toad or the scat of the toad. And these are rescue dogs from shelters. The gentleman who's training them used to be a like a bomb sniffing yeah. military dog trainer. Um, so we have that to go back now and start checking back because it's been you know, six months now. So we'll back, go back and do checks. And so like let's, that. I mean, just by way of example, let's talk about the horn toads. Cause I mean, as a, as a kid, they were everywhere. Yep. Uh, I caught them all the time. Um, my understanding was the lack of red ants has a big part of it, but so we have an endemic or a, a, a you know, a, a local species that kind of starts to disappear. Okay. Is it a zoo issue? Is it a, is it a university that reaches out to zoos and says, Hey, here's an issue that we need to address and y'all can help. It's really a collaboration between all those universities okay. are involved. Um, Texas Parks and Wildlife is involved. U.S. Fish and Wildlife is involved. Um, zoos are involved um, and other nonprofit groups that do animal things. Mm -hmm. um, like the horned toad is not yet listed as endangered or extinct. Is it not? But we're at, we're trying to not be reactive to this, what's yeah. happening. So they're gone from 40% of their range now. Is it vulnerable? Is it listed it's as vulnerable? Probably, it's probably on the edge of vulnerable, okay. um, but we're trying to get ahead of like, okay, we're gonna save this sure. for extinction. So we're trying to pump them back into the environment before what we call lizard factory. Like we're literally about to quadruple our lizard factory, which is our lizard factory production yeah. to put more out in the wild. But 
we all collaborate together on those things. Um, and it's a really close network working to save that species. But yet, like you mentioned, they used to be around the zoo, around every part of yeah. San Antonio and down south, and they're, they're disappearing for multiple I grew up reasons. in North Texas, and they were, yeah. you, know, you always saw, you drive down the road, you'd see them run across yep. the roadway. Yep. Um, so breeding, everybody generally understands how breeding works, but you also talked about, um, and I'm not downplaying it, obviously yep. there's a lot goes into that, but you also talked about y'all have tracts of land or ranchers that y'all help get ready. Talk about that process. I mean, are botanists brought in, entomologists? I mean, because you got to have food for them. What's the process of getting the the site ready? Yeah, well, our our vice president of conservation and research and our director are both PhDs, so they are that expert. Okay. And so um, Andy Glusenkamp, Dr. Glusenkamp, who's our director, uh, came to us from Parks and Wildlife. He was the state biologist for Texas Parks and Wildlife. Wow. So vast knowledge, lots of connections across the state with ranchers and, and landowners, and those they want them back on their property yeah. as well. So it's often a multi-year process. You know, you have to eliminate fire ants are a big problem for yeah. the horned toads because they eat the baby horned toads. They push out the harvester ants, which is the natural ant for, for the toads. And so you have to eliminate that. What we have found is man, land that's managed for bird hunting versus deer hunting is much better for toads because they like sandy soils and kind of grasses, not a lot of shade and tree cover. So um, those kind of places are working best for us to do these releases, but it takes us years. And we literally use satellite images to find the fire ant mounds and go eradicate fire ants. Hopefully they have harvester ants probably already on their property. Those start multiplying again. Um, and it's then, hard to get rid of fire ants, like notoriously yeah. hard, right? Yeah. But the, the method we have, we can get, we can get them down to like 5% of the population within one year on the, on the property. Okay. And then you can just be in a maintenance mode after that. I mean, I hate to ask, is it poison or is it a predator? No, we use a pressure washer system with a <laughs> wand and you, you pump, you know, put the wand in with yeah. hot water and some soap and it just, it kills the mound. Huh. You can move on to the next one. And so you just do that process across the whole ranch. As wow. long as it takes using Google, using like yeah. satellite images of a property. Um, and then you make sure the harvester ants are good. You know, the ranch owner has to be committed to like, I'm not using pesticides. Yeah. I'm not doing all these things. And the benefit of that is if we get a ranch or a property that's ready for horned toad release, it, it benefits every other native species. Yeah, it has to. Because you're taking it back to what it used to be. And so it's a win-win for us. Kind of the horned toad is our almost our Trojan horse to get into these properties yeah. to really benefit every species. Or our, it's on our umbrella species to help everybody is else. Is there a uh, harvester ant breeding operation elsewhere? Or do, will that just naturally reoccur? We buy harvester ants. Okay. And we collect harvester ants. And that's interesting how we do that, too. We literally go out with dustbusters to harvester. So if you know ants in Texas, mm -hmm. you know, you'll see... Uh, you see a mound, which is fire ants. Well, yeah. the harvester ants are the ones that clear a big circle, yeah. have one hole in the middle, big ants. Um, and so that's what they eat. They'll, some horntails will live their whole life at one mound, just live there. I mean, it's a buffet all day long. So I remember um, as a kid, they just would stand in one spot, yep. and it looked like they were licking them and just eating them. Yeah, they're not like the smartest animal, which is probably mm. what, part of the reason they're having some problems. <laughs> and everything likes to eat horntails. It's like uh, the chicken nugget of Texas. Okay. So... Um, we're working Sorry, with that. And, toads. Yeah, yeah, we're trying. <laughs> um, but so we buy harvester ants from a certified harvester ant dealer. and Because they're the same ants people use in ant farms, right? Sometimes. sometimes okay. Yeah. And, but, you know, COVID, we had we were starting to worry about harvester ant shortage. So <laughs> we've identified harvester ants all over the place where we go and vacuum. Wait, why did COVID? Logistic problems. Oh, okay, okay. And employees couldn't come in where they were. Working. I don't know if everybody was starting ant no, farms yeah, or no. something. <laughs> but that probably happened too. But, you know, we've we've tried um, growing our own colonies of harvester ants. It would just take so long to get colonies started that uh, we'd have to basically dedicate like five people in 10 years, yeah. 20 years. to. So for us right now, it's easier to go out and get <clears> ants with vacuums. And landowners are like, yeah, I have, a, I have harvester ants. Come get some. And so uh, we do that. Cool. both those things to um, feed the horned toads. So you get them set up. Then there's somebody that keeps kind of going out and checking. Um, are 
are hogs part of this problem? Hog. Well, I don't think. Well, maybe a hog would eat uh, horned toad. They eat probably everything. I think but, they're um, everything. Yeah. It's a lot. You know, coyotes eat them. Um, birds eat them. Yeah. Snakes eat them. Cats, feral cats is a big problem. Mm-hmm. I know just wild cats are a big problem. So, I mean, literally everything eats hornets, especially when they're born. They're the size of a dime or a penny. Yeah. So they're super tiny. And so, so we you, let them actually grow a little bit bigger before we release them out in the wild. So you said San Antonio, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth have all kind of joint ventured this project and split the state up. What is San Antonio's state? So we have South Texas. So okay. we do South Texas. Fort Worth kind of has the western and no- northwestern section of the state, and Dallas has kind of the north northeast section of the state. Okay. So basically in thirds, you, if you slice Texas into thirds. And there, you know, I grew up in the Wichita Falls area, but you kind of get up in that area, and a lot of people are big quail hunting ranches, yeah. and, and that's all starting to come back. But that was also dying off for a little while. The quail yeah. weren't, weren't yeah. doing good. Uh, okay, so I kind of wanted to just use the, the horn toad as an example to really show yeah. all the detail that goes into it. But y'all are also doing this with blind salamanders? Yeah, blind salamanders from a couple different places around the country. And a, a, a Dr. Finoli, who leads our conservation department, is – world-renowned for his subterranean work, so cave work and then species like salamanders that live underground. So we have species uh, in our care that are nowhere else in the care of man, mm-hmm. live on two ponds on earth. Uh, you know, the feds <laughs> have tried to do it. They can't do it. They call us to do it, and we do it. And what we're, you know, we talked about breeding. It's People have had some of these species and been able to breed them, like Texas blind salamanders from the aquifer. Yeah. But nobody knows what makes them breed. Like, what was the trigger that made it happen? Yeah. So if you're working to create an assurance colony or a, a colony where you can, if you need to trigger some breeding, you can do it. Nobody knows how to do that. So that's really what we're doing with, with the species here for the aquifer. Yeah. like, what is the trigger that makes them breed? And so we're working on that. Um, the salamanders, uh, some of the ones we've worked with that are almost extinct in the wild, they only live on two ponds now. Uh, we have figured out how to breed them, and then they had a problem where they turned black, and so Dante has figured out it's a vitamin B deficiency at some huh. level and some other things. And so, you know, it's really trying to solve the puzzle, get them back stable where we can start breeding again and then re-release. So we're hoping that we can do um, with the Flatwood Salamander go, our, go to our first re-release with the, the federal government and uh, is later the, this year. Is the trigger typically kind of like diet and weather and, and yep. temperature and all that together? Yeah, and as weather is changing around the world, yeah. uh, it's affecting the cycles of these salamanders. So like this salamander lays eggs in a dry spot that's low. It used to always rain the same month. The rains would come fill the pond. So then those patterns are changing now, so that's that's hurting them. Luckily, the two ponds we work with are on Air Force Base, and they're very dedicated to saving that species. So we're working close with the Air Force. But then you have to go out and look for eggs? Yeah, so we go out and collect eggs when we can, and then but it's bring not those like eggs back. turtle eggs where they're big; no, they're tiny. tiny. And that was part of the problem too: is the federal government was having problems collecting the eggs and getting them to to hatch. And Dante was like, "You're doing it wrong. You can't just scoop the egg. You have to like take the whole ground around it and uh, like you, things like that." Those are the things that we're trying to figure yeah. out. And there's sometimes we it didn't work, and there's some, but you have yeah. to go through that process to try to save that species. It's not a Barry White CD. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> we'd use that for other species like our rhinos and our puppies. <laughs> Uh, you know, at the orientation, Frank talked about one of the first big conservation projects was the heron or hooping crane. crane, Um, y'all had two and at the time there was 60 left on earth or something. No, there was, they were down less than 20. Okay. Uh, And so, um, we took an injured bird from fish and wildlife said, can you take one? We had a breedable pair. You had to, you have to get, um, permission to breed. They were already on the endangered species list. Um, and the zoological world said, hey, we need to help save the species. San Antonio Zoo said, hey, we have one and one that was just brought injured. We think we can breed them. Fish and Wildlife said, go ahead and try. We had a first baby named Tex. And he was kind of the bird that spurred on the recovery efforts of, of that species. And if you remember the movie, there's a movie where a guy's flying a hang glider teaching yeah. the birds how to you know migrate down Is to it South Texas. Birdman? 
I can't remember what it's called anymore, but he yeah. was literally teaching these guys how to get back yeah. down to the coast. And that, that all links back to the history of San Antonio Zoo and Tex. And so, so Texas really, genetics would be in some yeah, of those bars. For sure. <laughs> and, and so us, the Audubon Zoo in New Orleans, because Whooping Crane's also in New Orleans, yeah. or Louisiana, and uh, the, the, Crane, uh, the Crane Foundation, International Crane Foundation, are really we're credit, are credited for bringing that bird back. So now there's almost 800, we think, in the wild. Okay. But less than 20, 60 years but ago. But that's still pretty. Uh, it's still a low number, but they're doing better. Yeah. So. And if they were down to 20, y'all's DNA is going to be in a big chunk of those that yeah. are out there now. Yep. And so now what we do is we're still breeding whooping cranes. We have a pair now. They laid four eggs this year, which we're really excited about. Usually we get two, but it's a brand new pair. None of the eggs ended up being fertile. Um, so now we look at, okay, do we need to do artificial insemination on her? Cause we want to keep bumping those numbers yeah. up. And then the, and the zoos and the international crane foundation will decide, okay, does that bird genetically really valuable to go to another zoo to breed with these cranes or is it one we want to release back out in the wild and to breed out in the wild? So there's a lot that goes into all these conservation yeah. efforts. It's very coordinated and not just like, okay, go fly away from the zoo. Yeah, that, that was what was interesting whenever I actually went and did one of those uh, go pet the rhinos or hippos thing. And I remember yeah. them explaining how y'all realign animals to zoos based on their genetic yeah. sort of uh, 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 makeup so that there's no sort of crossbreeding or yeah. any of that kind of stuff. Is that a... Uh, sort of a committee within the zoo world yeah. of all the different zoos that decide those types of things. Yeah. So within our association, there's called what's called the species survival plan. And that is, we try to have a hundred years of good genetics of, of right. the species that we have. And so within somebody, I'll just use uh, rhinos for an example. Somebody runs the, the, the books and, you know, if ranchers know the books of their cattle, yeah. somebody runs the book for rhino. It's basically a match.com for animals. <laughs> So they've got a list of all the males in our zoos, all the females, and all the ties to their genetics, and um, you know, a big giant map of genetics. And they will say, okay, this female rhino needs to go breed with this male rhino uh, because those genetics are not represented. Or these two rhinos have had too many babies. Now don't breed those anymore. Yeah. Too many of the genetics in there. So it's this very complicated process. But zoos all work together to move animals around for that purpose. So recently, you know, we've got three rhinos now. Two females came in in 2019 identified to be to be potentially bred and then this march a male came in that was t tagged basically to breed with both of those because those genetics are not represented so we're hoping that he does his job which he's been doing <laughs> and that he's successful at it and we we get back into the rhino uh you know birthing and conservation program because we were the first zoo in the americas to have a rhino born and it was 1972 oh, so yeah. and we've had i think 19 since then but not for many years and so we're excited to get back in that program and really contribute so to will rhino. these this these two females and males stick around here for a while it or depends they, on if they tell us like we okay. could use more of those genetics then they'll stay there for a while for example the male came so our, one of our females came from bush gardens in tampa one came from a place called white oak and and outside of jacksonville and one came from uh, our, our new male just came from north carolina zoo so three <laughs> different zoos came here to breed um at his last zoo he had four babies with wow. with or with one or more. So he's fertile. Yes, he knows yeah. his job. Yeah. He knows his role. Yeah. <laughs> so um, at that point, you know, they're like, no more breeding at your zoo with this male because you have too many. So he was picked to move here. So it's very complicated, but the zoos work really well together to make that happen. You talked a second ago about how outside of Africa, Texas ranchers or whatever have huge herds of these animals, yeah. uh, more, you know, bigger numbers outside of Africa here than, than over there. Do the zoos ever reach out to these private owners and try to sort of spice up their, their genetics by getting these outside, you know, ranchers or sure. private game uh, we breeders? We don't bring animals in from outside zoos usually because we don't know their bloodline. If they have been inbred at some point, yeah. we don't want to introduce that into the species that pool that we have. 
So it's very particular of animals coming in. Gotcha. And then if animals, surplus animals of zoos, which not often happens because yep. we have methods of birth control and those kind of things. Um, very particular where they go. I mean, you have, there's a lot of agreements to sign with our association. You know, this can't be put out on a ranch to be hunted and those uh, kind of things. The nice thing about Texas is there's a lot of ranchers that just want those exotics on their on their property to watch them, yeah, to look, look at them cool. and enjoy them. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's thousands of exotic ranches in Texas. If you drive up through Bernie and Fredericksburg, yeah. and you'll see giraffes and zebras and all kinds of I've also of seen the ones where you can go hunt them too. It's yes, like yes. a menu. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, in, 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 in South Texas, y'all are kind of the only show in terms of a zoo. There aren't really any other South Texas zoos. Is there any sort of interest in moving sort of into the valley or into some of these underserved communities to have sort of, I don't know, uh, satellite zoos? Yeah, not a price satellite, but those people come to San Antonio. Sure. So one of the great things about being in San Antonio is we have 40 million tourists a year. <laughs> yeah. uh, and some of those are conventioners, but probably 80% are leisure travelers. And so we really are the zoo from Laredo up and over towards halfway to Houston, yeah. to Del Rio, to Austin. And so we really want them to come to our zoo and to our San Antonio to have an impact uh, on our city and our zoo when they come visit here. We do, with, we'd love to have property outside of the San Antonio city limits or within the Safari Park, but yeah. we would want to stay concentrated here in San Antonio. We do partner with other zoos. So we do a lot of conserv work, conservation work with Gladys Porter Zoo. We do things with the Fort Worth Zoo. We What's Gla where's Gladys Porter? Gladys Porter's in Brownsville. So okay. that, that project. Oh, I didn't I know there was one there. Yeah, yeah, great zoo. And we do, we do that, that work in uh, Mexico with jaguars. Okay. Uh, we also both have property, own property along the coast in Tamaulipas, so we do sea turtle rescue and rehab huh. down there. So, th I mean, there's so much happening around the world from the San Antonio Zoo and other zoos around the country that people just have no idea that we're doing that. When you visit the zoo, it's just really a small part of what's happening at the zoo. It's really behind the scenes, which is the big engine. And for like a tourist, how would they? How could they educate themselves on that? So we're always trying to do a better job to educate people yeah. on our conservation efforts. So we are doing, you know, videos now. Social media is huge for us to be able to yeah. tell our stories with videos and, and pictures. Uh, in the zoo, we were featured in American Humane's uh, recent movie, Escape from Extinction. They really um, highlighted our work, our work with the whipping crane. And so right. we're going to be running that movie in our restaurant, our main restaurant all yeah. day long. And then we're putting signage out on our conservation projects that you can learn more about the conservation work we're doing. And really just in general, as we design the zoo, growing, turning the zoo inside out so they can see the things we're doing. Right now we're working on an aquarium project. We do coral reef restoration work and mm -hmm. coral reef breeding. No one has any idea yeah. because you can't see it. So we want to bring a building in that you can walk in and see the laboratory happening. Um, in Africa Live building where you walk through and see the hippos, we're breeding species of fish that are extinct in the wild already. Mm -hmm. We've had some great bursts in those moments, but literally it's behind a wall that nobody can see. Yeah. So we going forward, we want to turn the zoo inside out where you can see everything we're doing, our hospital work at our, our hospitals, our conservation work, our animal care in the barns and those kind of places. We want people to, people to be able to see all of it. Yeah. I think those are the kind of things that like kids decide at that point, Oh, I want to do this. Yeah. You know, they're not going to look at it you know, just an animal in a, yeah. in a habitat and think, oh, I want to be a veterinarian yeah. in the zoo. But I remember as a kid, I did the behind the scenes tour at SeaWorld. I mean, it had to be 30 years ago now. Yeah. And they had bird operations and all kinds yeah. of stuff that you would have never known. Yeah. Their hospitals and Way stuff. Way in the back. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it really spurred an interest to me yeah. as a kid. Um, let's talk about some of the future projects. One of the interesting things y'all talked about was the gorilla habitat that's going to go in and just sort of some of the funny things that has stuck with me was the idea that y'all have you know quarry walls but y'all spoke yeah. with a different zoo and they said if those rocks fall they'll toss them yeah. through windows <laughs> but let's talk about some of the, the other projects and, and and honestly just i've always thought our elephant habitat was 
maybe the saddest part of our yeah. zoo, but that's one of the things in the future project. It's yeah. going to be expanded and they're going to get a lot more space. So let's talk about some of the, the upcoming projects the zoo has planned. Sure. So we have a full master plan that we're super excited about and we're going to do that in phases. So, you know, we got our first ever bond money from the city of San Antonio in 2017 to build the parking garage. So yep. almost $12 million built that beautiful garage on 281 which was really the foundation of our growth because without parking, we could build whatever we want and nobody could come see it. Right. So now we're working on a big plan and we'll launch that out in phases. And so people are going to see soon phase one and what that's going to be. And it's obvious what our zoo is missing. I mean, we do our, our group that does our master planning does, has done national surveys. What do people expect to see when they come to a great zoo in a big city zoo? Of course, great apes is top three. And we right. haven't had that for 30 years. And when we did have that, it wasn't a condition or a place uh, where we are this time where we would have a gorilla in yeah. a space. And so we're really excited to work on things like great apes and better exhibits for all the animals and really take advantage of the land we have on the other side of the highway, which people do not realize yeah. is, is part of the zoo and just really grow that zoo. And for people that are listening, all of that space behind the, the zoo school plus yeah. everything from the giant high rise all the way under 281 to the zoo is, yeah. is zoo property. Yeah. yeah. And so we'll build that full out and we're going to bring realms that'll take you to different parts of the world. And so we're really excited about the master plan and what it'll do. We know it'll be a big impact and a, and a game changer for the zoo, but also for San Antonio. And, you know, we used to be listed all the time, top three zoo in the country, top three zoo. That was at a time when zoos were judged by how many animals you had and yeah. those kind of things. And, and our zoo has, we still have some of the menagerie style exhibitry with little spaces where the zoo of yesterday had kind of one of each animal and you kind of, it was an assembly line. You went down and looked at each animal, yeah. checked it off your list now we're really judged by how much conservation work are you doing? Not only here, but around the world, how much education are you doing and how natural enriching and, and big are your habitats? Yep. And so for us being in a quarry, it's always been a historic challenge, but really we're to bust out of these quarry walls onto the rest of the property and build some big, amazing exhibits for animals that are. But the quarry also gives y'all, I mean, you'll have a big space and you yeah. also have built in walls and kind of a lot of things built in. That yeah. are it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, other zoos would just come to our zoo and they're just blown away by the, you know, directors or whoever comes. They're just blown away by the beauty of these beautiful cliff walls. Um, the river runs through the, yeah. the San Antonio River runs through the zoo. We have these, you know, cypress trees that are 50 to 100 years old, probably, and just gorgeous um, zoo. The, the, the quarry walls are great because a lot of zoos have to pay a lot of money to build walls yeah. like that. But at the same time, they're very big. So it's very imposing also, which makes everything feel a little bit smaller in our zoo versus a, a zoo that has a big open space behind an exhibit and things like that. So, you know, we'll kind of really even looking at flipping the script on where you view from. Do you view now from the cliff wall side instead of looking at the cliff walls and those kind of things? So we're really looking at um, every angle of the guest experience, the, first the animals to create natural habitats and very enriching and welfare is the focus. Yeah. Then you're designing for the keepers and the people that are taking care of the animals. They have to have access and be able to do the husbandry and the medical work they need to do. Then the guest um, to create a great experience them and also protect them from themselves. <laughs> because we see uh, last week someone hopped a barrier at a zoo in Florida and put his hand in the jaguar exhibit. And did, did his hand come out? It, he's lucky the jaguar clawed it and did not bite it because he probably would have pulled them through the mesh. But um, and so those kind of things. Those you have to take all those into consideration. Plus. Our, our associations have guidelines. USDA oversees our mammals. Uh, uh, so they have federal guidelines. And so there's a lot that goes into designing every zoo exhibit and habitat. And um, But we're really excited about doing bigger, more natural spaces. And we've been really, if people have been watching what we've been doing in the last six years, it's really been um, addition by subtraction. Our whooping crane ex ex uh, exhibit, for example, used to be three different cranes in that space with two walls and dividing it into three spaces. Yeah. 
We said, let's focus on whooping crane. We took the walls down, opened up a beautiful whooping crane exhibit. And, yeah. and they're laying eggs. They're happy. They're they're breeding like crazy. Um, that's an example. We have a historic monkey house that a lot of zoos in the country had. It was a, it's this beautiful WPA building, but it had square cages attached to it on concrete floors with small primates and, and gibbons and small monkeys. And so it's just not the way zoos house and care for animals anymore. So we literally just moved all those guys to other zoos, took the cages off the wall, mm -hmm. and it's literally been sitting there empty for four years now, um, but we're not going to have animals in our care in that manner anymore. We're at, at the expense of having something in that space. Going to do something with yeah. the space, though. So now we've turned in, we're turning literally in the middle of turning it into a patio. We'll make it a seating right. area with a little yeah. snack bar or a bar, margarita bar, or something yeah. fun. But um, we've been doing addition by subtraction, just opening spaces up to connect spaces together. Jaguar walk that's going to open in fall is a good example. There's an existing jaguar habitat. There's a, a, a you know, 20, 30 yards away is the jaguar habitat that they used to be in. Now we're going to connect those two together with a big catwalk uh, system that no one else in the world has done. We're going to take it over the main pathway, which people have had catwalks over pathways, but no one's taking one through another exhibit. So our jaguar will go through the Amazon aviary across the river twice and then back up into the new, the old habitat. So we're giving them 130% more space. It's great. Um, natural behavior opportunities to be up high, like in a tree down by a river where they hunt. And so we're really excited about that, that Jaguar walk. Um, the cassowaries are all by themselves. Is that because they would kill each other if they got? Yeah, a lot of, sometimes in zoos, <laughs> and it's hard to tell this story, they're solitary animals. Jaguars oh, are, are an example. Jaguars are solitary animals. So people are like, why is there only one? Well, I'm, that's how they live in the wild. They only get together huh. for breeding. So if a male smells a female around that's ready to breeding, ready for breeding, They'll get together for that, and then they split back up. I didn't know that. Tigers are the same way. So we rotate our tigers in, in and out. So one of the things that Jaguar also excites us is, you know, we have a male and a female Jaguar. The new catwalk system will have gate systems within it. So we'll be able to put both Jaguars out at the same time and have them separated still. So uh, the old exhibit can have one, and they can have access to half of the catwalk. The other Jaguar could be in the old exhibit and have access to the other half of the catwalk. So to be able to have multiple out at that time instead of having to shift them back yeah. and forth. It's good for the Jaguars. It's better for our staff, easier to manage. So we're excited about that. So, but so telling that story is hard. Yeah. People want to know why is that tiger by itself and are those kind of things. Where the lions next door, there's four or five together because that's how they live in the wild. Sometimes people yeah. don't read. No, they don't read. Up a sign. Nobody reads the signs. Yeah. But the cassowaries. You'll you appreciate at. attorneys, right? So <laughs> when I lived in theme park world, the manufacturer gives you a list of 50 things you got to yeah. put on the sign. And I'm like, I can't have a sign with all these things on it. You know, it's going to be 12 feet tall. The attorneys are always, you have to have the sign. You have to have the sign. Then something happens, and the first thing the attorney says, that sign doesn't matter. Because I'll be like, look, they did this, and it says on the sign they can't do it. Yeah. Sign doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like the uh, commercials the for pharmaceuticals. May cause and yes, yes. 50 things. <laughs> yes. it sounds way worse than what you're treating. Yeah. Y'all yeah. um, also, I think people maybe don't realize a lot of the events y'all do. Y'all have got Zoo Ball, which is kind of a formal event. Y'all yep. have Zoo La La, which is Christmas. Now, that's in uh, late spring, and that's a big food and wine festival. Okay. So we do you know, 50 area restaurants come in. Uh, they donate their food, and then we have all-inclusive food and bars and five stages. Last year, we had the spasmatics on the main oh, stage. Cool. Um, we had DJs around the zoo. We had Finding Friday up at the top by the Lions. We had dueling pianos from Health the Moon inside the <laughs> VIP areas. We That's had awesome. two VIP areas. Uh, two, two years ago, so in 2019, we had um, some 90s bands. We had O-Town and Aaron Carter perform no, on the great line yeah total blast <laughs> and we just have fun our events are we just like to have fun with the events but we do have just a, pay them with tickets yeah, yeah. like i hey, will take that. a robust lineup of events i mean almost yeah. almost year round there's something at the zoo that that really comes from creating a good guest experience where the zoo of yesterday was like oh, i went there it's, it's yeah. the same every time i go well now there's something different right now we have dinosaurs going for the summer um as soon as dinosaurs over we almost immediately roll into zubu for six weeks which is our halloween program yeah. six weeks straight 
we have a two week break there, which we'll do. We're going to do a girls power weekend. One of those weekends, we'll probably open Jaguar one of those weekends for grand opening. And then we go right into zoo lights for oh, six that's weeks. That's what the Christmas thing is. Yeah. Come back around to January. We're doing, you know, slower month. We don't do events because the weather could be, you know what, yeah. but, and then we go to spring break, jungle boogie break, and then the whole cycle over. So there's events happening year round. It's always something There different. used to be an event with the current. Is there still? They've done it here a couple of times. So there's best of they've done at the zoo. There's a bunch of things that we've done different. Yeah, I went to one of the current groups. parties there back yeah. when they used to do a bunch of parties. Yeah, they don't do as much as they used to, but yeah. we've done the best of event that they have for their um, readership thing, which this year uh, we won best family, uh, best place for family fun from the current and things like that. So, so I think a lot of people kind of have the misperception that there's uh, the zoo for everybody. And then there's the zoo for, you know, people that are part of the board or, or, you know, part of organizations, the zoo's got all kinds of memberships and, and, you know, sir, what would you recommend for like, you know, people that are just trying to dip their toe, but they want to be a little bit more involved in the zoo than just going once in a blue moon. What are some options for people just trying to get involved? We have probably five layers of um, layers of membership that people can do. So there's, um, and we're running sales all the time. So usually you can get a one year membership for, you know, 30 something dollars, 10 cents a day. Yeah. Um, we also started last year a monthly membership program. So you make a small down payment and then we, as little as $3 a month, you just pay $3 a month. It just keeps going until you want to cancel it. So there's, there's ways to come into the zoo. That's very affordable beyond just the one day visit. Yeah. Um, there's also, we do what's called locals days. So we do an $8 ticket about 12 plus times a year where locals can come super affordable for everybody. And, and we, our goal is to be accessible to the entire community. Yeah. I mean, we have to charge admission because we're responsible for our own budget and paying our employees yeah. and taking care of animals. And so, but we want to still maintain ways that the entire community has the opportunity to come visit the zoo and learn about what we're doing. Um, we talked about the gorillas and we talked about the expanded elephant habitat. What is sort of the hopeful timeline on some of these additional projects? We think the whole master plan is probably 15, 20 years, depending okay. on how much we, how fast we can fundraise and, yeah. uh, and get the city to help us. Hopefully, you know, like currently we're working with meeting with council members and the mayor and city manager to try to get some city funding to help us, we'll work with the county in the same manner. We'll work with the state, uh, the federal government. You know, our zoo really um, came to life during the WPA when we were coming out of the Great Depression. Yeah. The government was flooding the the market with infrastructure dollars, trying to put people back to work, get the economy steady again, kind of like exactly what's happening right, right now. Right. So yeah. we, we look at this as an opportunity, like let's have our second coming of San Antonio Zoo and try to you know capture some infrastructure dollars. We have no infrastructure on the other side of the highway right now, so that's going to be a big cost for us. Yeah. And then we're just 107 years old, so we have a lot of infrastructure challenges on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, 1.2 million people visit us a year, so it gets a lot of love, and it's very old. So uh, we had a construction project in 2014 in which we found wood pipe, still operating wood pipe at the zoo. So <laughs> I didn't know that was yes, ever a thing. I thought it was, it was clay. Thing. No, people, this was before clay. So it was wood, <laughs> then clay, then PVC. Um, and so we have, you know, old, old pathways, WPA walls that were, you know, not built with a rebar. They're just rock and and mortar and so we have a lot of maintenance to do and really modernization and and we're doing that in small chunks is it you know when we're the, one of the few zoos in the country that's probably operationally self-sufficient we don't get city budget money every year you know we're self we 100 depend on tickets yeah sales i didn't and donations. know if, if we could talk about that but yeah. a lot of zoos in texas get city government money and san yeah. antonio's unique in that they get none right and so for us to be able to be self-sufficient is pretty remarkable and uh, we need donations to do projects, day to day operations. The zoo is able to fund itself, and that's because we have smart people. You know, I surround the room with smarter yep. people than me, and those smarter people are doing great things to keep yeah. us going. You know, well, and we if we make 
uh, what in the business world we call a profit, we call it reinvestment. Mm -hmm. It goes right back into the yeah. zoo, which is the beauty of a nonprofit. One of my favorite things of coming from the for-profit world of SeaWorld and Fest Texas to the zoo is literally everything goes right back yeah. in. And so, but we're, we have so much to do, you know, probably a hundred million dollars of infrastructure work we could do in a snap of a finger. Yeah. It's just going to be a constant challenge, but we're really just chipping away at it. And people that have been coming the last six years, I've seen a lot of infrastructure changes and improvements at the zoo. And we're hoping with these big campaigns coming, uh, which we've really timed with city bonds to try to get city bond yep. help um, that we're, it's going to be a game changer for the entire property and really get us up to every standard. time I've gone, there's something new at yeah. the zoo. Um, has there been any sort of study into what the economic impact of our zoo is? Yeah. So it's over a hundred million dollars a year now, as we are now. Uh, we've also done some research on if we open this first phase of this new project in 2024, after the next bond, if that goes through um, ex exponentially grows to the impact for the city and Bear County, because put a lot of people to work during those five years. And then the, we know the attendance jump that we're going to see by bringing in a mega species like gorillas, which, yeah. you know, we're one of the few zoos in the country that doesn't have great apes. And mm -hmm. we, and we want to teach people about great apes and we want to be in the conservation conversation about great apes. And so that's a good example of something we bring we'll, that we know will be a big game changer for our zoo. And we'll see the attendance correlate with that. And as fast as San Antonio is growing, we need to be growing the zoo and really getting ready for that attendance that's going to come to see those animals. And it, it's becoming, you know, zoos are kind of an arc now, sadly. Um, that, so that we have a lot of species at the zoo that are extinct in the wild. There's no more in the wild. And we're just breeding them, hoping that someday, you know, we're going to be able to re-release them. King, Micronesian kingfishers, there's 144 maybe on yeah. the planet, all in zoos. They were wiped out in Guam during one of the world Did wars. Did y'all have one? Uh, We've one had three births this year of that bird. During the pandemic, at least one of them, because yeah. I remember yeah, seeing it on social pandemic. media. We've had two since. And so there is groups working on those islands around Guam to get ready to put those birds back. What happened was warships came through there and staged during the war and snakes were aboard the, you know, stowed away in boxes, got on the island. This, those birds had never seen a snake in their life. So I'm sure it just slithered up and ate it. Yeah. Um, wiped them out. So uh. Uh, us and other zoos are working to breed those birds so that when they get the island eradicated of snakes, we can bring birds back out, re-release. So that's what we have hope snakes, for. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's someone's out there doing that. Somebody is literally <laughs> doing that as their job. And then send them to Florida yeah. next for the pythons. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Florida is a mess. Um, but then we have these fish from uh, two different species of fish from Mexico that are extinct in the wild, but their ponds are gone. So we're breeding those, and the question at some point becomes, okay, what do we do with these guys? What happened because to the ponds? The, they're dried up or, you know, were development or something. Development, yeah. yeah, so the ponds are just, or the lakes are gone, and um, they're not there anymore. So, or a dam was there. Who knows? But yeah. it's just nowhere to put them back right now. But our goal is just keep them going and keep growing the population so we can hopefully someday release them back into, into yeah, that. Yeah, it really is the arc. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the great apes you talked about, are great apes just gorillas? No, there's a ring. Okay. Actually, so we have gibbons, which are considered a great ape. You know, yeah. they're, you know, long, a couple of feet tall. Yeah, yeah. Maybe two feet all the way stretched out. Like, you know, you know, the plush animals you buy, the yeah. arm goes around your neck and yeah, that's yeah, I just think of the long arms. Like, so yeah. a couple of years ago, we had a little baby um, that figured his way out of the mesh. Uh, we have a beautiful gibbon exhibit, probably 40 feet tall, full of trees. Well, he figured out how to get out of the mesh as a little baby. They're, you know, they're pretty mischievous and. Of course, he just sat there right on top. He wanted right back in as soon as he got out, with, and mom sat right there with him. <laughs> but the headline on one of the stations the next day was like, Great Ape Escapes San Antonio Zoo. And I'm like, well, that was brilliant. But, it, he, I mean, he was this big, like the size of a chihuahua. But, yeah, so we have given. Well, wait, there but, were the monkeys or, or chimps that escaped uh, Southwest Research that time. Yeah, those were uh, yeah. those guys were, like, stacked up on tables. In the neighborhood or, or something. something. Yeah. <laughs> They're smart. Yeah. And so that's the other part of designing for those guys. Is Do we have chimps? Nope. 
Okay. We did before. We had back in the 40s, 50s, yeah. 60s, we had two chimps who were movie star chimps. Uh-huh. I mean, you'll find, you can Google pictures of those guys, and, and everyone knew them. There was a little chimp show. They wore costumes and sat in director's chairs. I mean, they were movie star yeah. chimps, and so not what a zoo obviously would do yeah. today, but it is an interesting part of our history. Um, I know the gorillas are part of the plan. Are orangutans or chimps or any of those part of yeah, the plan? Yeah, we want too? multiple um, – Great apes, okay. which exact ones we haven't decided yet, but we know people expect to see those kind of things at a great zoo. And so as we go through design process, and and that and we've said the whole time our master plan is organic, <clears throat> things may change. You know, um, if elephants are a good situation, are a good example, there's less than 35,000 Asian elephants left in the wild. They're just being decimated. Mm-hmm. African elephants are 96 are killed a day, one every 15 minutes. Good Lord. And so those numbers are dropping, dropping, dropping. At some point, there's going to be no more elephants. Right. So are you going to build an elephant exhibit and there's no elephants within zoos to support it? Because they would come from other zoos. Yeah. Um, so the num- there's a numbers game with some species. And so we have to be flexible with what we're doing. And, you know, we also want to be involved in um, have species that we're doing conservation work with. We're not trying to have one of everything anymore or have everything anymore. We want to pick animals that, one, draw people in and kind of be that species like we talked about with horned toads. Right. Make them love the zoo, love that animal, what we're doing. And then hopefully we can serve all these other species with it. But you have to have those those mega species or superstar yeah. species to get people to come visit you. Like a lion or a bear. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, before we end this, I want to talk a little bit about the Will Smith Zoo School that – I have a, a baby, obviously, and... Uh, Get on the me, list now. Huh? Get yeah. on the list now. No, we're on the list. <laughs> okay. we're, we're on the list. Uh, we paid her $25. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I didn't really realize the whole story of the zoo school. Tell us who Will Smith was. That's who the zoo school is named after, and then we'll talk a little bit about the school. Yeah, so I mentioned earlier Kronkowski's Tiny Tot Nature Spot. We were the first zoo in the country with an area for kids, zero to five, focus, nature play, get outside, get muddy, play with bugs, touch things. And from that was really born the zoo school. And it used to be in the education building at the zoo. One classroom started with four kids the first year, (laughs) got up to about 20 and it was full. So for 15 years, we had 20 kids in a class doing zoo school every year. Um, We never talked about it because it was always full. Yeah. And so fast forward 2014, I get here at the end of 2014. Um, I'm learning the zoo, learning the neighborhood. And there's a lot of talk among board members like, oh, that school was for sale a couple years ago. We should have bought it. Maybe the the staff didn't want to do it. The staff's like, we should have bought that school. Somebody on the board didn't want it. And so I'm going out to meet all the neighbors. In my first board, uh, you know, maybe you're going to be on the board meeting with some board members. They had strong opinions about who kind of messed that one up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure. And so I'm going around meeting all the neighbors as the new zoo guy. And I go up to the Kip Academy. They were having breakfast tacos. I'm like, I'm just going to go crash their parent meeting meeting and eat some tacos. And I met Eric, who was the director at the time of Kip Academy. And he's like, hey, you know, your property comes all the way over to the school. You know, what are you going to do over here? And I said, well, who knows? Someday there could be elephants in your front yard. You know, we're going to build this way. Uh, And he said, well, I don't know if anyone's interested, but, you know, we're going to be selling the school. And I was, and I was, first time ever I played poker face. I'm like, okay, well, I'll see if anyone's interested. Drove back down the street and got on the phone with the EC. Like, they're going to put that school for sale. We got to grab it. And we knew the universities were going to want that property. Yeah. The school district would want that property. Developers wanted that property. So we jumped on it. The original family who built that school was the Sunshine Cottage School for the Deaf. Really wanted the zoo to have it both times. Yeah. And so they were helpful with us. So we ended up getting it, leased it back to Kip for a year. Um, and we're building it out. Uh, you know, it was it was a traditional one or kinder through 12 school. So like we all went to school in big hallway down the middle, yeah. one bathroom with three toilets for the boys, three toilets for the girls. And we're about <laughs> to put 200 plus preschoolers in this building. So we're like, that's not going to work. We knew we had to do some bathroom work. 
Oh, we went to Lake Flato and said, hey, what would you do with this campus if you could reimagine it? And the, the design they brought back just blew our minds. We're like, we have to do that. Yeah. So we really gutted the building down to concrete and built this amazing facility. And we told them, don't make it too nice inside because our kids spend 70% of the day outside. Yeah. Um, and it's nature-based, so they are outside. But Lake Flato has a really good understanding of kind of bringing nature in and blending that, those it's lines. It's kind of their thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're at state parks. They're yeah. you know doing those kind of things. So we bought it in 2015 demoed basically down to the bones and then reopened it in 18. At that time we had gone from four classrooms. We'd gone up to four classrooms in our education center, knowing we need to grow the school to yeah. make the move open in 2018 with five and then to eight. And then now at 10 classes. Oh, it was just 2018. Yeah. And so uh, we're look, we're starting to fundraise for it, which is not the way you would usually do it Buy the school and then yeah. build and then design it and then and build and start fundraising. But it was one of the situations we just had to jump on the opportunity um, Susan Naylor, who was on our board at the time, um, had lost her son, Will Smith, at the age of eight. He, he was killed in the car wreck. Um, loved the zoo, loved nature, mm. al always went to Africa, loved Africa, loved the children of Africa, loved doing things for the children there that didn't have what he had. Um, and so she's like, I really, this is made for Will, mm. for my son. And so I worked with Susan, and she was our biggest donor to the project, of course. We were so honored to name it the Will Smith Zoo School. Now, people ask us all the time, is that Will Smith the actor? Yesterday, someone asked, is that Will Smith the actor? And she, it, it frustrates her sometimes, but I'm like, Susan, this is a good thing because people ask. Yeah. And I get to tell the story of Will, and so, and so do you or whoever they ask, because if it was the Tim Morrow Zoo School, nobody would be asking, Who's, is it Tim Morrow? Yeah. I just ask. assumed it wasn't Will Smith, yeah. but I didn't know who no, it was. No, people think it is. Yeah. And so, but we get to tell the story about Will, which is this yeah. incredible story. And there's a big wall of Will there with pictures of him and things yep. like that. Yeah we, yeah, we really tried to show the history of that campus. Yeah. is so amazing. So the building, we've left it very raw. Where the little old hearing booth was in the school, we filled it with gel so we could tell the story of here's where the hearing booth when it was sunshine. Because it was a school for deaf. Yes. Yeah. And so, and Tulita, our street, is named after the girl who was built for. So oh, we I have all these that. connections to the yeah. family still. They're involved with the zoo still. <laughs> Um, but it's just an incredible campus and, you know, 240 kids go there. The waiting list gets up to five to 800 people. Um, they go to the zoo every single day. They're learning outside kind of Montessori inspired yeah. nature based programming, um, 16 kids to a class with a teacher and an assistant. So it's just, they have their own pond there yeah. to put their hands in with crawfish and fish. They're and growing their own vegetables, growing their own fruits and vegetables. They've got their own butterfly house. They can go in and, and play. Yeah, and I don't think that is fair. Like it's a butterfly house. Like you see at a museum yes. that has butterflies flying around in a netted yep. enclosure yep. with their plants that he, they eat in yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> so the kids get to watch that whole process. Yeah. They take, the, they release the caterpillars in the whole process that kids get to watch. So, we're really creating the next generation of conservationists there. And those kids go home and take those messages and learnings home too and get their families outside. Yeah. I, I can, my first hand, my daughter went to the zoo school. My older son did not. He wants to be on his iPad all day. She wants to go outside and play with bugs <laughs> and catch lizards. Yeah. For her last birthday, everyone got her Barbies. I got her a bug catching <laughs> machine. So it has a big impact, you know, and she, and she wants to go outside. We're going outside to be with her. So it has a great impact on the kids. And a funny story is we're building the parking garage next door. Yeah. That whole side of the highway, one time it had to be just stripped of land. Um, I think it was part of an old city dump and incinerator out there because it was out in the middle of nowhere yeah. at that time. Um, so there's no native species on, of trees on that side. One oak tree on that whole side of the highway, God. I think. Well, we have to clear the land to build the parking garage. The three, four, and five-year-olds next door at Will Smith School were in panic mode because deforestation <laughs> was happening next to their school. So, you know, the whole general public's driving by that every day. Tens of thousands of people on 281. Nobody says anything about, about it. But my kids, we had to go talk Just to the crying. kids at zoo school and say, you know, here's what happened. They were not native species. 
we're going to come back and plant 100 trees yeah. and screen screens. And I'm like, we're doing it right. If our, if our three, yeah. four, and five girls are using words like deforestation and worrying about those things, they're doing it right. And so my wife's friend's daughter goes there and she said they have some sort of outbreak of some sort of snail in their pool and the daughter won't let them kill them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they've got to watch them grow. No, my daughter gets the, if a doodle bug or something gets in the house, she picks it up, takes it outside and yeah. puts it outside. It's good. That's how I was as a kid. Yeah. But I was a kid who got to grow up in the country and grab everything and get stung sometimes, but yeah. learn all that stuff. That's really the concept of the school is yeah. like when a lot of us grew up with come home when the streetlights come on. Go outside, you play in the creek, you know, you're crawfish hunting, yeah. fishing and fishing and playing in the mud and building forts and work, you know, learning as a child how to negotiate with your friends and do team with work with your friends to build stuff. And the school is all about that. Yeah. And so they're really learning how to be future leaders at the age of three, four and five through their nature play. And, and part of what I wanted to do on this was really discuss how the zoo is not what people think it is anymore. Right. I mean, you know, people know the kitty park went over there and probably wondering why, but the zoo school is its own thing. The conservation effort. Uh, I know y'all are making a big push for sort of family and kid involvement yeah. in these things. Um, and I, and I hope this conversation gets some people to at least look out and see what y'all are doing. I'm going to ask you afterwards if I can share some of that stuff that y'all sure. sent us about sort of renderings of yeah. what's going to be next. Uh, I, Tim, I always end these, we're right at an hour, so it's about time, but I always end these with, um, I used to do sort of who are some of my guests wish lists, and it's always Popovich. So he's always number one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anybody else you think I should reach out to who you've met and you just think have an interesting story to tell about San Antonio. Oh man, that's a good question. I mean, there's so many people that do so many amazing things in San Antonio. One yeah. of the things I love about this city is like you see somebody in need and our community rallies to their benefit. Yeah. Like right now you're seeing Cleto Rodriguez, who everyone knows from TV mm -hmm. has COVID in the hospital and there's fundraisers for him and people are donating to him because yeah. that's just what San Antonians do. And part of what the zoo has been trying to do is really reach out and help other nonprofits. You saw that what we did all through COVID with, we took food to Haven for hope that yeah. we didn't want to go bad and those kind of things. So I think almost anyone in this community, you could, you could kind of just tap and have come on and you would get yeah. the most interesting stories. I had a guy from the food bank on Eric. Yeah. I mean, He's what kind of like incredible. biblical. I yes. mean, he's just such a touching, true believer. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He is not a person that's just a talking head. Like he believes in that mission. And, and you saw his dad um, was homeless. Yeah. I mean, that's part of yeah. his story. You know, it's yep. just a different, a different and you look motivation. At that what during, happened during COVID, that picture of our food bank went worldwide, yeah. mm -hmm. worldwide. And so uh, what they're doing over there is And that great. picture we, raised a lot of money. Yeah. And we, know, so I mean, we try to help, we do stuff with the food bank and, you know, we try to help raise the whole community. I think that's part of what makes San Antonio so special. Well, I'm going to bug Dante one day because I'm you sure have to have him Dante and I can on. talk science. My I'm, dad was a biology teacher, so I kind of grew up getting to play with things. And Dante is what I call the most interesting man in the world, and yeah. I hate when I have to speak after him because, <laughs> first of all, people will talk to him for six hours because he's so fascinating. Yeah. He's been out in the field all over the world. We have a great conservation project in Peru. We spent a lot of time in the Amazon and you know all over the world, and he's just a great, incredible person. You could go through the zoo staff for sure, and the expertise and the dedication of the people that have worked there. Our animal care vice president yeah, has I'm, been there for 45 years. His very yeah. first job was at the San Antonio Zoo, and he's been there his whole life. So you can imagine what he's seen and, and done. Yeah, I mean, just some of the people I got to meet in that short amount of time, and I get to do, I'm, I'm doing my reptile thing in, a, yeah. in the next oh, week. you're going to have a blast. Yeah, I mean, I'm really <laughs> going to geek out about this stuff. Uh, Tim, thank you for doing this. Uh, I look forward to getting to be on the zoo board and yeah. learning more about the zoo. And I'm going to have more zoo people on just because I think it's fascinating, Perfect. but thanks for doing this. And I'll uh, thanks for having me on. It's talk always to fun to soon. talk about the zoo. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Alamo hour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio.